Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Here's a question for you I want to ask as we get into God's Word. What do you do with people who are different than you? What do you do with them? That's the Christian answer. Thank you for answering that in church because if you wouldn't have answered that way, then I would wonder something's wrong with us. Do you remember what it's like to be an outsider? you remember what it's like to move into that school and that you're halfway through the school year? Do you remember what it's like to join the team and the team has already kind of been put together or the parents of that team have kind of got all their friends and you're the out man? Do you know what it's like? You remember what it's like to be the outsider when you walk into the job and you walk into that office space or you walk onto the floor of that, of that manufacturing center and everybody kind of knows everybody and you're just the new guy? You're the outsider. You're the, you're the odd man out. You're, you're the one who feels like, well, you know what? I don't know if everybody's going to like me or not. And that conversely can work that way because what does everybody feel like when they're around you? Do they feel like an outsider? Do they feel like, man, I don't know if that person really likes me or not. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they have something against me. Maybe they think in all of these assumptions that begin to flood our minds. Because, see, here's what happens. We naturally tend to want to be around and we are more comfortable with people that are like us. Right? We like to be with people who are like us, whether it's cultural or racial or, or uh, generational or now in our world even political, right? We want to be around people that think like us, that, that act like us, that talk like us, and we want to hang with those people. Those are the people that we want to hang with because we feel comfortable. It makes us at ease. We don't have to really, you know, be on guard because we understand them. We understand who they are, where they come from, but we don't feel comfortable with people who are different than us, with those people. And so what we do with those people is we often tend to make assumptions about who they are and what they are without knowing them or without even understanding them. And so today what I want you to do is I want you to to look at James with that, those, that lens. You see, in our culture, there's a lot of people now who are less interested in talking to each other and they're more interested in yelling at each other. And that has created such an incredibly difficult climate that we live in right here in America. But I want you to understand something. The early church was not exempt from that. The early church dealt with many of the same things that, we're, that, that we think about today. The teams were a little bit different, but the scenario was exactly the same in the early church. There was Jew and Gentile. You had slave and free. You had the rich and the poor. You had men and women. And all of them felt like that one or the other, they were on two different sides of the cultural divide and that there was no, no bridging the gap. That was happening in the early church. But on the day of Pentecost, something happened. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came down. And guess who showed up to church the next Sunday? 
All of those people who didn't know each other, who didn't understand each other, who were not like each other, that were different, and now they're sitting on the same row in church looking down the row saying, man, what kind of meeting is this? The church exploded into this diverse group of people. And today, Christianity is still the most diverse movement ever to come upon the world. Everybody that knows Jesus, you're on Team Jesus. You're on Team Jesus. It's a modern day miracle, I'm telling you, just to be sitting in this room right here with the differences of all of us, the differences of the people. It's a modern day miracle that there's so much separation out there and there's so much division out there that inside here we can come together in one name and we can worship together in unity and harmony on Team Jesus. Now, I understand. Well, well, Pastor, you know, hold on. Well, I know about, yeah, 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 I understand. Not everybody on Team Jesus it's really on Team Jesus. I get that. I mean, just because you're 6'3 and you weigh 265 pounds and you walk around with a Dallas Cowboys jersey on does make not make you a part of the team. Any more than coming to church, going and watching a Christian movie, or putting a Jesus sticker on your car puts you on Team Jesus. There are essential beliefs. We understand the Bible is God's word, that we're sinners, that we have to be born again, and that puts us on Team Jesus. But to come together and to see this miracle of Team Jesus right here in this microcosm of Journey Fellowship Church, it's an amazing thing. The world can't do this. They certainly can't do it in Washington. The world can't come together in one idea and worship together or or agree together that this is the first and the most important priority that we have in our life. The world can't do that, but the church of Jesus Christ can. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And this miracle of this united body of Christ took a little bit of effort, and that's what James addresses in James chapter 2. I want you to look at with me. In James chapter 2, verse 1, here's what he says. My brothers, in other words, my family. He could say brothers and sisters, but he says, look, look, family. It's a family discussion. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't show favoritism or partiality. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated again among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The first thing that James begins to address in James chapter 2, this, this thing in the, in the early church is this, is that you don't look down on them, instead you look up to him. Don't look down on them, you look up to him. You see, in ancient times, social status and, and who, where you ranked in society was often, was often, determined, your, often determined your seating arrangement. Who you were, your status, those people got the best seats in the Jewish synagogue, always. Well, not much really has changed today because those people who were the most generous in the, in the uh, early, early ancient days, they were the ones who got the best seats. Not, not a lot's changed today. 
I mean, when you go to the Cowboys game, the people who own the suites, the people that have the boxes at AAC, those people live on a different economic plane than most of us, right? I've been to one Cowboy game. I went to watch Tom Brady. Sorry, Cowboys fans. That's why I went. I went to watch Tom Brady. I went to watch, watch him. And I went to that game, and you've heard Paul describe the third heaven. That's kind of where we sat. Up in the third, we had binoculars so that we could see not just the players, but to see the field. We couldn't even see the field. I was like, there they are down there. Man, must be a great game up here in third heaven. I can see it. It's wonderful. And as I looked in my binoculars, I could see people down there on the sidelines, people hanging over the edge, giving the players high fives. I'm like, wow, must be nice having those seats. It was a great experience. It was a great experience just to be there. But at the same time, what James was saying is before the church was launched at Pentecost, it wasn't uncommon for the most generous, the most well-known, the most influential, the most high-status people to get the best seats. They didn't pay to play. They paid to pray. That's kind of how it worked. The church is different, though. In this house, this, it's different here. Because the church is not, it's not a business. It's a family. It's a family. And we sit together as family. I mean, think about if you set your, your family around your family dinner table or at Thanksgiving according to their income. Okay, son, you're going to sit, ooh, no, you're going to sit there. It wouldn't work. Because that's not how we treat family. At family, everybody's the same. You just come in, you sit where you want, to, you, you want to go. But our culture lives in a world, and James is addressing this, our culture lives in a world where you get what you pay for. And that's the way it works. Whatever you put in, that's what you're going to get out. Now, there's nothing wrong with better seats. In other words, there's nothing wrong with having the ability to buy those better seats. I don't condemn those people that are down there giving high fives to the players, to Dak and all those guys. Praise God for it. That's awesome. That's great. But there are some, there are some bad seats. How many of you know what the worst seat on the planet is? Anybody that travels much, you can tell me what the worst seat on the planet is? Please tell me right now. What? Cheap seats, all this. How about this? The middle seat on an airplane. Anybody ever been stuck on the middle seat? Usually by the time you get to your row, the dude's already sitting in the aisle seat. And so you have to say, oh, dear Lord, would you please, can I? And he looks up at you and he says, would you like to get in? And you say, no, I think I'd prefer just to get in the overhead bin. And, and you squeeze in. And there's already a person sitting on the window and there's this dude right here and you're sitting and they've already consumed the, the armrests so you turn into T-Rex. You're like, got your arms like this, you know, hoping that you can reach whatever you need to reach. It's time to eat. Sitting in the middle seat. This happened to me one time on an airplane. I got stuck in the middle seat between two big dudes and they filled the seat. I'm not talking about their seats. They filled the middle seat too. And I squeeze in, and I sit down, and I'm praying, Lord God, deliver me. Look, rapture now, now. 
And all of a sudden, as I'm just kind of, I just close my eyes and I say, oh God, you know, just, Lord, just give me the strength, Lord, to last for the next couple hours. All of a sudden, I hear this squealing. It sounds like somebody's killing pigs. This guy has got his head over like this and he is snoring right in my ear. Right in my ear. And I kind of open my right eye and about that time, I catch a whiff of something that smells like somebody changing a diaper. And I look in my left eye. This guy's eating like these spicy pork rinds. Well, one? No, I'll pass. I'll pass. Your breath smells like Satan's breath. I'll, I'll just stay in my T-Rex position and keep still and pray to God that he would rapture me before this plane lands. It's a terrible place to be, to be in the middle seat. There are better seats. I like better seats. But when it comes to the house of God, God's grace buys everyone's ticket at the same price because Jesus paid for them all. I want you to please understand. I kind of alluded to that talking about just the cowboy. I thank God for people who are prosperous and who are generous and who give out of a giving heart to the Lord because that's the way it works in a family. That's the way a family works. Those who don't have, they get taken care of by those who do. And that's great. That's the way a family should operate. When you go out to dinner, as my son-in-law knows, I'll say, hey, give me the check. He's not even in here. His tab is so high now, he'll never pay it off. In a business, it's, hey, you get what you pay for. And that's how it works. And James writes in James chapter 2 in this passage, he writes, look, we know how the world conditions us to think. You get what you pay for. You are the most important person because this is what you have and this is what you... But James says, look, you have to stop looking at the externals in people. You don't look at a person who comes in, they're in shabby clothes, and then a person who comes in and they're in nice dress clothes, and you think, oh, we need to treat this guy better because he's going to give to the church. That's not how it works in the church. Can I just tell you, I treat all of you the same because I have no idea what you give to the church, and I don't care and don't want to know. That is kept by, by one individual who, who does our books, and, and when they, they have the reports, I have no idea what name is on what. And I keep it that way because I want to, to love you and to, and to care for you because we're all the same in the family. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so James writes this, and he says, look, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not show favoritism. Don't be partial. Showing favoritism, what that is, is... is it is actually the counterfeit of spiritual discernment. And he says, don't show favoritism. What he's saying is he's saying, don't settle for the counterfeit of spiritual discernment. Favoritism and partiality looks upon the externals. Spiritual discernment looks at character morals, internals. That's what, that's what discernment is. And that's what we're supposed to use in the church is discernment. What is the motive? What is the purpose? What is, your, what is, what is behind this? But when you make assumptions and judgments strictly based 
upon externals, what you're doing is you are favorite, you are being playing favorites and you are being partial, which God says don't do. Now let me ask a question and I want you to just be honest with me. What are some things that we often do that we often look at to help us determine if that person is somebody that we want to know or we want to be like or be around? What are some things that we, that we look at? Come on. Come on, talk to me. What are some things? What? Okay, what comes out of their mouth? Yeah, maybe the way they talk. How about, how about the externals? More than just what comes out of their mouth, what about what they look like, right? What they wear, right? We look at what they wear. Oh, yeah, that's the kind of person. Man, he's, he's cool, man. He's got his Air Jordans on. Man, I kind of like you to know him. Find out where you got those. What's the other thing? What car you drive? Absolutely. You know, did he pull up to church in a beater? Or did he roll in with a, a nice, you know, lifted four-by-four four that looks like, man, it's a monster truck? How about, where, yeah, what job? What job do they have? Are you the CEO? Are you the CFO? Are you the J-A-N-I-T-O-R? <laughs> right? What are you? Where you live? What, somebody said house. Where you live? Do you live in this zip code or do you live in that zip code? And so we make, these, we make these generalized observations and the world teaches us and conditions us to do that. But here's the insidious part about the whole thing, about favoritism. It works both ways. The rich hate the poor, the poor can hate the rich. The young can hate the old and the old can hate the young. You see, it can go any direction. It's not one toward another. And so what James points out here is James says, look, there is this natural tendency for everybody to look down on other people that are not like you, that are different. And so he gives this solution, and here's the solution he gives. He says, don't look down, look up. Don't look down on them. Look up to Him. Look up to Jesus. Look up to the Lord of glory. Look at verse 1. He says, To our Lord, our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Now remember, James is calling his older brother the Lord of glory. That is pretty impressive. Look up. He says, Look up to Jesus, who is the Lord of glory, meaning Jesus is the highest authority in the entire universe. He is over all of it. He is the Lord of glory. On several occasions, the Bible tells us that Jesus is now living in heavenly realms. He's living in heavenly realms. After Jesus was raised from the dead... The Bible says that he is exalted. He is high and exalted. He is seated upon a throne, a throne in heaven. He lives in heaven. He is seated there. Don't look down on where they're going to be. Look up to where he is seated. Look up to him. In the book of Revelation, John, out of the 22 chapters, John mentions the throne 17 times. Through the New Testament, the the throne is mentioned 45 times where it says that Jesus is on His throne with all authority and all dominion. Whenever the throne is mentioned in Scripture, it points to the fact that all worship and all glory and all honor and all obedience is all directed toward it and that all authority, power, dominion comes from it. It is the throne of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Look to that throne. Look to that seat. 
James is saying, look, quit being worried about where you sit in this social scale or on this popularity scale or on this economic scale in this life, but turn your attention to where he sits. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Just think about that. He is the Lord of glory. What does that mean to us? Well, it means that if you're very impressed with yourself and you look to the throne of glory, you're not that big a deal after all. Jesus is sitting upon the throne in heavenly realms as the one who is worshipped and adored because He is glorious. He is the one who is, who is above it all in all the universe. Glory is a word that is mentioned 275 times in the Bible and it translates into words like splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, heaviness, weightiness, prominence, preeminence, luminescence, majesty, holiness, purity, and worthiness. Just to kind of help you catch this, how do you know when you've been in the presence of glory? I'll tell you how. You respond by this little three-letter word. Wow. Anybody ever caught a sunset and as you sat there and you watched it and all the colors just blasted across the sky. It looked like God's masterpiece painting. Every day he does it. And you just go, wow. Jeff, you told me y'all look at that sunset. Wow. Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? You ever stood on the side of the Grand Canyon and you just look across the Grand Canyon? You know, because a picture won't do the justice, right? So you just have to look there and what do you say? Wow. Been up Pike's Peak? Through the Rockies, you look at those things, majestic, big, beautiful, snow on top, and you just, wow. Ever been to the beach in the Caribbean? Nice Mexican beach, man. There's nothing like that beautiful white sand. You just stand there and you go, wow. Wow. That's what it means to be in the presence of glory. Why do we say that? It's because when you see something like that, you feel so small in the presence of something that's so beautiful and that's so big and so magnificent. The only response you can do is say, wow. And that's why you travel. That's why you go places. Because you want to feel like you are in the presence of something that's so much bigger and so much more magnificent and so much greater so that you can say, wow, let me just give you a little update. That's why you were created. God created created you so that you would be in the presence of his presence and you would one day look before him and you would say, wow, this is incredible. You are so much bigger and greater. I'm small in comparison to all this. Wow, God, your glory is incredible. You were created to be that way. That's why you feel that way. That's why there's that feeling God created you to be like that. You know, too often when we look at Jesus, we look at his humility and we don't see his glory. But let me just update your theology just a little bit. Jesus is no longer that man that was raised in that poor Israelite family that didn't really have a place to lay his head. That's not him anymore. He's not the carpenter making chairs anymore. 
He is the one who is sitting on the best chair in heaven. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's no longer rejected and abused. He is now being worshipped and adored by all of the seraphim and the angels of heaven and all of us. He is the one seated high and lifted up. So don't think of Jesus as he was. Think of Jesus as he is. The king of glory. It even gets better because... He said he's given you a place for glory. (laughs) Not only is Jesus seated on the throne, listen to what Matthew chapter 19 says. Jesus says these words. Jesus told him, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12, what? Thrones. He's directing his his conversation to the disciples. So that's why he talks about Israel. But look at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. How many of you are ready for a new seat? (laughs) I'm ready for my new seat. One day I'm going to receive that. I'm going to trade my temporary chair for a permanent chair. If you know Jesus, you're going to trade this temporary home, this temporary house, the temporary job, the temporary whatever, with permanence, eternity with Jesus forever, seated in heavenly realms with Him. Not to be, not to be worshipped, but for you to worship Him from your place in heaven. James says, look, look at the, look. When you see people in church that are different from you, don't look down on them, look up to Him. Because that's the seat that's the most important. He points out something else. He says this. The second thing thing that I want you to just catch out of this passage is that he tells us don't look only on the outward, but look on the inward. Now, I know what you're saying, Pastor. That's not profound. I've heard it before. That's very repetitive. My mama told me that a long time ago. Okay, thank you, Forrest Gump. Let me just expound on this. There is a reason why we call it Facebook and not Soul Book. You know why? Because we look at everybody's pictures so that we can know everything there is to know about them. Now, tell me, Forrest, do we look at externals or internals? You see, look at what James says in verse 9 or verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who live with Him? In other words, He's saying there's two economies. There is the finances and there is faith. And we spend way too much time paying attention to the financial economy and not the faith economy, okay? Verse 6, But you have insulted the poor. is, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the name, the noble name of him who you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and it's important, verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, if you show partiality, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, in chapter 1, if you've been with us every week, you'll know that James has already talked about this outward observation of people. 
And if you've been blessed, he says, look, if you've been blessed with wealth, fantastic. If you're poor, he said, that's okay because there's a faith economy that the things that that you have in that economy are things like joy and love and peace and patience and self-control and meekness and all those things. And those things are incredibly important in our life. Matter of fact, they're more important than any dollar that you'll ever earn. But the world, and we know this, the world looks at, at you and I, the world looks at everything in the world through the eyes and the lens of money. Businesses and companies and business owners and people, they look at you like a bank statement and not a human being. Because what happens is most people will look at them and they say, you know what, what can I benefit from this person? And if you only look on the externals, what you're going to realize is you're going to miss some of the best relationships that you could ever have on this planet if you're only looking on the outsides. And James addresses this. He says, look, don't look on the outward. Look on the inward. The real question that James really is getting to is he's saying, where is your faith? What, how rich is your faith? He's telling us this truth. And here's the truth I want you to kind of see. I've, I've, I've come to several conclusions out of the truth of this, these few verses. He brings this truth. He says, you are much more important than what you have because when you look at someone with just the benefit of of what they can give on the outside, you know, and, and I just encourage you, if you're looking for a spouse, look on the inside. If you're looking for a good friend, look on the inside, what they can bring to you from the inside. But he says, you're much more than what you have on the outside, it's what you have on the inside. In James chapter 1, I talked about these four categories because the world, they only have two categories, the rich and the poor. But the Bible says there is the godly rich, there is the ungodly rich, there is the godly poor and the ungodly poor. There are four categories. And what James is addressing here is he's saying, look, there's a conflict right now between the godly poor and the ungodly rich because they're the ones taking you to jail, throwing you in prison, despising the name of the Lord. But just because... They're taking advantage of you. Don't write everybody off. Don't put all of the rich in the same category. We can't do that. That's the way the world works. Don't put all the poor any more than you can do do the poor and put all of them in the same category. There's godly poor. There is godly rich. There's ungodly of both. And I know people personally who are rich, very rich, and they are godly people. They are generous, they're prosperous, they're helping, they're, they're good stewards of their wealth. And I also know people who are very, very godly and they are poor. I know some missionaries right now who have accepted a calling that doesn't make them very much. Their 401k is not impressive, but their eternal K is very impressive. So it's, it, it, you don't throw everybody into the same basket. You have to look at the entire letter of James, and we're going to get there when you get to chapter 5. When you look at the entire letter of James and you see it in context, you see this point so clear, and he cautions this to the people in chapter 2. He says, we should not allow our preferences to become our prejudices. Don't allow what you prefer, who you prefer, what you prefer in life to become your prejudice to say, you know what, because you don't have what I prefer, I'm going, I'm going to shun you. I'm going to push you aside. Let me give you a perfect example of that. How might you have evaluated Jesus while he was on the earth 
if you just looked on his outside. Hey, Jesus. Hey, what kind of education do you have? Oh, don't really have one. Kind of self-thought. Well, um, Jesus, what about, what about how do you make a living? Well, I street preach. Heal a lot of lepers. They don't have a whole lot of money. So, you know, I mean, it just comes together. Well, Jesus, what about how, how, do you, how do you, are you famous? Does people know you? Oh, yeah, a lot of people know me. They're all trying to kill me. Well, Jesus, what about your family? Well, you know, I come from come from poor uh, uh, poor family. You know, my parents married when they were very young, and uh, my dad's a carpenter, so blue collar family. That's who I'm from, who I am. Well, Jesus, what where do you live? Well, I I mostly couch surf, but I really prefer sleeping on boats. Those are really nice. What about a wife? No, kids? No. If you were to look at Jesus in his 30s, you would probably see a guy who's homeless with no steady income stream, no wife, no kids, no retirement, but he is God. Now, I know some of you are in your 30s and you're thinking, man, I'm going to try that kind of life. I caution you to do that because you are not God. The truth is, what we see in the life of Jesus, if we're looking on the internals and externals, is you see Jesus teaches us the lesson that you should not just pursue your potential, but you should first pursue your calling. Jesus would have made a great businessman. It's not my calling. He'd have been a great husband. Not my calling. A great father for sure. Not my calling. He'd have been a great leader of a government. Matter of fact, he really is a leader of a government. It's called the kingdom of God. And he does a pretty good job at it. There's no potholes in heaven. It's paved with gold, the streets are. So he's doing a really good job at that. But you know what? His calling was not to any of those things. His calling... was to be the Savior of the world. And he stuck to that calling. With all the potential that he had, he stuck to the calling of God. But if we'd only looked on the outward and not the inward, you probably wouldn't have been interested in Jesus while he was here. Look at verse 8. James says, As a child of God, there is one thing that we can all afford when it comes to wealth. Externals, internals. There's one thing that you can afford as a child of God. Look at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's quoting his older brother here, and he says, keep the royal law. What is the royal law? It's the law of love. Love God, love people. And every person, no matter who you are in this life or what job you have or how much is in your bank account, you can afford that. You can afford to love. Everybody can afford to love. You see, partiality and favoritism ask, well, what can you do to benefit me? But love asks, what can I do to benefit you? 
Love puts the priority off of me and puts the priority upon you. And that's what James is saying. He said, look, when you come into the house of God, he said, you don't look at the externals. You look at the internals. You look at how you can serve the other people sitting down the row from you who are different from you. How can I add to your life? How can I bless you? How can I benefit you? Because it's the internal stuff that really matters the most in life. Not microphones. And I conclude with this. Daniel, if you'd come. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Remember, Jesus is the one that said that. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In other words, you've broke them all. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. I'd underline that. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And definitely underline this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We tend to see a world that's filled with good people and bad people. And most often, we put ourselves in the category of the who. We're the good people. And everybody else is those, they're those bad people. And we look at them and we compare our lives with them. And we say, well, you know what? They're worse, they're worse than we are, so we've got to be the good people. And that's how the world works. But God is different. You see, God rules and reigns in a, with a perfect and a permanent law. And he uses the judge of the permanent one and the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who judges by this perfect and this perfect uh, uh, permanent law. God judges with this perfect law. Now, in our world, we don't understand that because we judge with a sliding scale. It's, either, it's, it's an A to an F. And so the good people like Billy Graham... He's an A. Mother Teresa, A. A plus. Hitler, F. Me, C. Plus, maybe a B minus. But that's not how God grades. God doesn't grade A through F. God grades pass fail. It's either pass fail. You're either perfect, pass, or you failed, you've made a mistake, imperfect, fail. And that's how God grades. That's how the Word of God, that's the law of God. It's perfect. And Jesus adds to the challenge. Look at what Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Boy, now that's a statement, right? Be perfect. You want to really feel good about yourself? Have your neighbor sitting next to you look at you and say, you have to be perfect from now on. Look at you. She's pointing at Aaron. Perfect. Don't step out of line. She's going to be there. 
You have to be perfect. And you know what, you know what even adds to that challenge? Here's what, here's what adds to it. Jesus doesn't just talk about the externals of, hey, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery. He goes internal. He says, I'm looking at your heart and your thoughts. Don't even think about hating somebody. Don't even have lust in your heart because if you do, you are guilty, imperfect, fail. And through this passage, James moves us from looking at them and judging them to God looking at us. And when we get to the end of the chapter, God's judging us. And that's how James starts. Hey, you're looking at this guy that's coming in and you want to judge him? Hey, go to verse 13. God's going to judge you. Here's the reality we're all sinners. We're all imperfect. We're all guilty. And if you think of yourself, you say, no, I'm not, I'm not too bad of a guy. No, 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 really, really, really. Yeah, you're imperfect. Just ask your wife. You are. She'll be honest. And therefore, since you are imperfect, since you have failed, since you've broken the law in any one way, that's what James says, if you've broken any way, you're a failure. Your sinner, your relationship with God's broken. God, God's reserved judgment for you. If you're a Christian here, or if you're not a Christian here this morning, this moment is just for you. And I want you to listen to me. There's good news. The bad news is there's only two options for you if you don't know the Lord. One option is just you walk toward God facing judgment. But the other option, James tells us, is you can approach God humbly and ask for mercy. Oh, man. You can ask for mercy. Oh, you deserve judgment because you're guilty. I'm guilty. I approach the Lord and I say, Lord, I want mercy. And I picture this in my mind. I don't see it in the scripture, but it's the same. I picture somebody who's brought before the district court down here at Denton County Courthouse. The ominous thing of you got bailiffs and you got attorneys and you got you're sitting in there, you're waiting, and all of a sudden the door on the behind the the seat, you know how this goes, Keith. The door opens, and what does that, that bailiff say? He says, All rise, and the judge comes in. He takes his seat in that big dark robe or she takes her seat and sits down. And then all of your crimes, your sin, your failures are read to the judge. What, What are the charges against this person? And you're standing there by yourself knowing that all of those charges are absolutely true. And the judge has the right to do whatever he or she wants to do. He, he, can, he can, at that moment, guilty as charged, execute punishment. Here's the wonderful thing about our judge the perfect one. 
He sits on that throne, on that seat. Perfect. And what he does when they read the charges, this person has done this, this person has done this, this person thought this, this person felt this way, this person did this. The judge, just like he did in heaven, he stands up and he takes his robe off, drops it to the ground, And he walks down off of that platform, that judge's platform. He removes himself from the seat of judgment and he comes out to the place of mercy, which is called the mercy seat. Because it's at the mercy seat where he says, here is where the blood is applied. So I come down, instead of passing judgment on you, I bring mercy to you. I command right now that all of the charges be dropped because the only thing that I see is my blood. My mercy has triumphed. I have traded seats. I'm not just the judge. I am the merciful one. I am in the place of the mercy seat. The blood is there. Woo, talk about changing seats, man. When you come to the Lord, your seat gets rearranged from guilty to free because he says, when you know this law, this law leads to freedom. (laughs) Mercy leads to freedom. If you're here this morning and you need freedom, and you need mercy, you're in the right spot. I'd like for you to bow your heads all over this room. I want all of those who are going to be helping us serve the Lord's table to come and make your position right now. Everybody else, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, the most important time. I don't want anybody else moving around except for those who are coming forward to get ready to use the emblems. But today, if you're here, this most sacred few moments of the day, if you're here and you need mercy, applied to your life because you know I'm guilty before God. I'm guilty as charged. When the Lord sees me, He sees what I have failed at. He can give you mercy and His blood can cover over all of your sin. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand right now and let me pray for you? Yes, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes, sir. there's, There's lots of hands. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You want mercy today. You want mercy. Yes, young man, I see your hand. Let me tell you something. All it takes is a humble heart and a humble prayer. A sincere, a sincere prayer of your heart that says, Lord Jesus, we sang it earlier. I need you. I need you. I need you to forgive me of my sin. Come and take away my, my failures and give me a, I, I want a new start today. If that's you, I want to pray for you because in just a moment, we're going to take the the table of the Lord as the family. So if that's you, I want you to pray in your seat where you raised your hand. I want you to pray that prayer that says, Lord, forgive me. I'm guilty. Please forgive me. I ask for mercy. Give me a new start. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray right now, Lord, as those who raise their hands, Lord God, they they recognize, Lord, their guilt before you. That, Lord, today, Lord, they would just speak to you. Lord, they would speak in that sincere voice. Lord, says, Lord, I need you. I need you to come. I need you to change my life, to transfer me, Lord, from that life of death and darkness 
Lord, that life, Lord, of captivity, Lord, to a life of freedom because of the blood of Jesus. The cross stands to remind me today that I don't have to live in my sin, but I can be free. And that's what, that's what the cross has done for me. So today, Lord, I pray that you would help those who raise their hands. That today, Lord God, your mercy, Lord, would triumph over judgment. Lord, set aside, Lord God, their guilty stains, Lord, their guilty sin, Lord, and replace it, Lord, with the mercy of the throne of God. I thank you, Lord, for those, Lord God, that you changed this morning. And I praise you and I give you glory in this house. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.